You know, when I first became a prosecutor, I remember speaking to this Mexican-American prosecutor and stating, there's not very many African-American DAs here. And her comment back was, I agree, but there's even less Latinos here. And she was right. I started to count and I want to say there was less than five. And you're talking about Riverside County, which is 50% Latino. So California and the lack of representation is mind blowing to me. Our mission is to make sure that we're fostering and cultivating space for Latinas and Latinos in the legal community, whether lawyers or promoting them to get to the bench. Hello, I'm Yumika Anderson Howard, DNI Manager at Dwayne Morris. On our Dwayne Morris DNI 360 with Joe West podcast episode today, our partner and chief DNI officer Joseph West will have a discussion with April Smith, Deputy District Attorney for Alameda County, on fostering and cultivating space for Latinx lawyers in the legal community. Uh, hello, everyone. Uh, my name is Joe West. Uh, those of you who might not know me, I'm a partner at Dwayne Morris. I'm a member of the Partners Board, and uh, I have the privilege of serving as the firm's Chief Diversity and Inclusion Officer. We're very, very pleased to have uh, April Smith joining us. April is the uh, Deputy District Attorney for the Office of Alameda County uh, District Attorney's Office out in the Bay Area. Uh, April, welcome. Thank you. I feel so honored to be on this podcast. Thank you so much for inviting me. Well, thank you for joining us. Uh, I will tell you that I've had the privilege of uh, serving on a couple of panels with April, was immediately uh, impressed with uh, not only how brilliant she is, uh, but also the very interesting background uh, that she has been involved in. Uh, there's a YouTube video that I would advise everyone to take a look at that talks not just about her professional experiences, but uh, a very interesting uh, and inspiring family connection. So I want to start the conversation there, April, uh, and ask you to tell our audiences, first of all, a little bit about your professional background, but then let's get into uh, that aspect of your family and personal life that you were kind enough to share with the world on YouTube. Yes, thank you. So my professional background, I am a deputy district attorney here in Alameda, as you've already shared. Um, I've actually been a district attorney now for 12 years, going on my 13th year. Started my career in Riverside County, which is Southern California, a bit more conservative. Was there for six, then decided I really wanted to live in the Bay Area, primarily because of how diverse it was. Came here, I was very fortunate, uh, landed my position with Alameda, and to be completely candid, the reason I was so excited about it is my entire career, I wanted to work with trafficking victims. So for three years with Alameda County, I prosecuted sex trafficking cases. Um, I've done two life human trafficking cases with juveniles where I'm very grateful that these men have been taken off the street. They were um, hurting quite a few young people. Um, and that's really the professional part of it. There's so much more I could say, but those are kind of the, the major points I want to bring up. Well, can we drill down a little bit on that? Absolutely. Uh, because when I when I first saw you on a panel, that was actually one of the things that impressed me the most, particularly because it was at a time period when there was a lot of discussion in the news about uh, black and brown women who yes. were missing and exploited. 
so can you talk just a little bit more about your work in that area, uh, how important that is uh, and, and why and how it's something that people should pay a little more attention to? Oh, absolutely. So that has always been the center point of why I wanted to be an attorney and it has been um, the most rewarding thing I've done in my career was participating in the trafficking unit. How it's set up, Alameda was really kind of the uh, center point to putting together a program to work holistically with our youth. And as you've stated, our victims of human trafficking are predominantly young black and brown girls. There's no getting around that. We have 13 major hubs in the country for trafficking. Three of those major hubs are here in California, which are San Diego, Los Angeles, and the Bay Area. So the track, and they call it the track or the blade, it's an area known for prostitution. One of the most dangerous in the country is here in Oakland. Mm. One of the things we've developed up here is a, a vertical prosecution team. It's called the Human Exploitation and Trafficking Team in which we not only prosecute traffickers and pimps, but we also make sure to hold a space for these young girls. So we have our prosecution team that works in hand with what we call our safety net team, which is run by another prosecutor. And that's where all of these community-based organizations get together to discuss how to create a safety net for our victims. So whereas I'm meeting this young girl and the usual, um, the average age for these young girls going into trafficking who are being exploited is 12 years old. So I'm meeting these babies who are 12, 13 years old of course, I'm working with them many times before we're even considering the jury trial. What we're really looking at is who is this child? How can we step in and make sure that she's safe? And then of course, how are we going to engage in the process of prosecution, making sure that she's safe, connecting her to the resources, trying to get her back to school, and oftentimes trying to find a place for her to live. So that three-year span in which I was, working in that team um, really kind of changed my life in a lot of ways. I, I had an opportunity to work firsthand with these beautiful children. And I was able to learn not only from them, but from the community at large, some of um, just the wrong information that's out there. People have these stereotypes about who these children are. Many times, as you know, and there's been documentation to this effect, are young girls of color are seen and, and given this adult persona. Yeah. Um, community is looking at them as though they're adults and they're children. And mm -hmm. so we've done a lot of training in the Bay Area to break that down and remind people, regardless of how she's speaking to you, regardless of how she's dressed, this is a 13 year old girl oh, and reminding yeah. them of that perspective. So I, don't, I, I get excited about the, the subject matter because I'm a firm believer that the way to fight this sort of pandemic, if you will, because it's a, it's a avalanche of issues is by communicating that the problem is there, making sure people can see it and then starting to work towards the solution collectively because you, you really need a full force to attack it. Yeah, and you mentioned making sure people can see the problem and have an appreciation for it. I, I think, you know, obviously so many of us uh, I think probably everybody on this call who enjoys some measure of affluence, it's very difficult for us to understand how much this is a problem, sometimes right in front of us, right beneath our noses in the communities where we live. 
so I, I, I'm sure there's some effort involved in educating the community on these problems and these issues as well. Absolutely. And, you know, I always give this example. There was a case with a really young girl. She was 18 years old. She's at a local Starbucks that I go to just about every morning. And on this particular morning, she was pulled into the bathroom by a man. It was the, the workers at the Starbucks and some of those in line that called the police and said, something doesn't seem right. They're fighting, the fighting doesn't feel normal. Long story short, officers get there. And when you drill down and did the interviews and did search, he was pimping her, he was abusing her. And there was a young girl in the car, 14 years old, that he was doing the same to. But it was those phone calls that started the whole process in order to save those children. It's being able to see if there's something that feels abnormal. Um, and part of our trainings, we talk about there's certain, um, certain things that will trigger this sense. So if you see a young girl between the ages of 12 and 16 going into the hospital for ER visits without a parent, during school hours, we train our hospital personnel to look for that and to call in and be aware that that man that's with her that doesn't look like dad, uh, yeah. that seems to be playing an odd role, that could be a trafficker. So there's all of these signs that we kind of train on. So let me talk about kind of a related issue and, and it's this, um, you know, we're all familiar with the fact that there's a complicated history between black and brown communities and law enforcement between black and brown communities and uh, prosecutors. Uh, tell me how you navigate those issues uh, in your work uh, and what are some of the challenges that you experience? So for law school, I went to Howard University School of Law and I bring this up because that conversation was pretty consistent throughout my three years in law school. The idea that there were two schools of thought. One was how could you possibly be part of a system that is in many people's perspective and understandably railroading black and brown people into the prison system? How can you be part of that? The other perspective was, let's look at the power behind what the district attorney can do. They are the responsible party for charging cases and also dismissing cases. There's a tremendous amount of power held by district attorneys. So how can you not be part of that system to make sure that it's being operated and run with equality and justice? Two of the deans at the university were ex-prosecutors. So obviously, you know which school of thought I fell into. Um, when it comes to the relationships, you're absolutely right. And how I navigate that, and particularly how I navigated it with those young girls, is by being transparent, being honest, and understanding that one of the things that I feel very strongly about in both my communities, because I am half Mexican, half African-American, is that we are typically very keen to being able to feel what when someone is lying to us or when someone's being truthful with us. So when you're really in it for the right reasons, those girls can feel it, your victims can feel it. And I tell them all the time, I'm gonna share with you how this is going to operate but you don't need to just believe me wholeheartedly. And I don't want you to. Let me earn your trust and let me show you why. And that's how I navigated it, by earning their trust. Well, uh, you're doing fantastic work and I'm proud of you for that, April, as are we all. Um, you mentioned being half Mexican, uh, yes. which leads me to the, the next topic. I think I, 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 the first time I, I tried to get an interview with you was around uh, Hispanic Heritage Month. 
and even though it's not Hispanic, Hispanic Heritage Month now, we can still celebrate Hispanic Heritage Month. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about that aspect of your heritage uh, and uh, give us expand upon that just a little bit. Absolutely. Um, it's a very, I'm very proud of both my cultures. I'm very grateful to be an active community member in both my cultures. Um, when it comes to Hispanic Heritage Month, one of the, the video that you were alluding to earlier was really my way of giving a, um, I don't want to even use the term shout out, but really introducing my mother to the people that I care about in my legal community. She has been my backbone. Um, what I talked about in the video was my parents got married very, very young. My mom was 18, my dad was 23, had my brother and I immediately, I'm the firstborn, she had me at 19, him at 20 years old. And she decided to go back to school in her 20s. And so I had to watch primarily because there wasn't enough money for babysitters. So I was there in the college classrooms, but I watched her go through these classes, raise us, work. You know, my dad was working three to four jobs. She was working a job just so that they can provide food and shelter. But I also, in that experience, saw how important education was to her because she was willing to sacrifice everything. She was willing to sacrifice her own rest. She was willing to sacrifice her own, you know, levels of joy. I, you, she wasn't out shopping or playing or doing, she was studying all of the time. Uh, she graduated with a 3.8 with all of that on her plate. And she consistently would tell us, the way you make your impact is through education. You know, not only for yourself, but for your community, because then you're able to do more for the people around you and the people that need you. And that was really the driving force in me deciding to go to college and go to law school and to go into the district attorney's office. So, I mean, that, that's, again, something that really jumped out at me when I saw the YouTube video. And I, again, I recommend it to people. It's such an extraordinary story of determination and, and perseverance. And it's, it's very easy to see where you get your passion from. Um, so the people who will be viewing this will run the gamut. Uh, we'll have people in the corporate sphere, um, in the law firm space, uh, in the public space, nonprofits as well, including a number of uh, younger lawyers uh, who are perhaps just starting out their careers. Um, what advice would you give to people who fall into that latter category? Uh, just about the profession generally or uh, what it takes to uh, follow your passion and to be successful? My advice would be to find your community within the legal community. And what I mean by that is exactly what you stated at the beginning. There are moments where it can feel very lonely. You know, when I first became a prosecutor, I remember speaking to this Mexican-American prosecutor and stating, there's not very many African-American DAs here. And her comment back was, I agree, but there's even less Latinos here. And she was right. I started to count and I wanna say there was less than five. And you're talking about Riverside County, which is 50% Latino, but we had very few DAs. And just to give you an idea to this day, it's 2021. There's one Latina judge in Riverside County, one sitting Latina judge, and we are 49% of the population. So California and the lack of representation is mind blowing to me. So my advice is find your community so you can stand strong, grow your skill sets, because we need more of us on the other side of the bar. 
we have to continue to grow out how many of us are on the other side of the bar. And that's why I joined Ispe La Raza Lawyers Association. I'm a director on the board. And it's because our mission is to make sure that we're fostering and cultivating space for Latinas and Latinos in the legal community, whether lawyers or promoting them to get to the bench. So I'm glad you mentioned East Bay La Raza. That was actually next on my list of questions for you. Uh, explain to people what it is, uh, what the, its mission and its focus is, how long you've been involved, what your role is, uh, and why it's important. So Isabella Raza Lawyers Association, it's focused here in the Bay Area. There is a La Raza for San Francisco. Uh, there's quite a few in different counties, but I sit on the board of directors for East Bay, which is primarily Oakland-based, Alameda, um, all of South County. And what we really stand for is bringing together our community. As I've already stated, there's very, when you look at the statistics, CalBar website of how many of us have um, become attorneys and are on the bench, the numbers are disproportionate to our population. So our mission is to foster an environment to make sure that we have a space to communicate with one another, that we're feeling um, strong in connection because you need to feel connected because being an attorney, being a judge, obviously is not easy. You know, there are all sorts of challenges that come up throughout your career where you need safe spaces to have those conversations uh, to talk about how to continue that growth. And that's what we're here for. And also to promote law school students coming in and making sure they're feeling comfortable taking the bar exam, that they have mentorship, that they're, prepar they're prepared for the profession. So realistically, we are an organization where we're promoting all of that, but we're also a family. Um, and we're always ready and willing and looking for new people to join. Um, part of that org, as I stated, I've been there two years, I am the chair of the pipeline committee. So that's part of my position is bringing in new people and making sure they feel connected in the legal community. So you talked about sort of like the, uh, the, the paucity of uh, judges of color, uh, lawyers of color uh, in, in the Bay Area. I mean, people typically think of California uh, include, especially the Bay Area is being fairly liberal. Uh, but I, I know that I've had this conversation with uh, uh, Terrence Evans, a fantastic partner of ours uh, out in the Bay Area, who's, who recently became the, uh, the president of the uh, Charles Hamilton Houston Bar Association. Uh, same, same conversation. What do, you, what do you think is the reason why, and, and let's extrapolate this, because there are other pockets of the country where you have uh, significant diverse populations, but still uh, not as many lawyers, not as many judges, not as many people of influence in the legal sphere. What do you think is the reason for that gap between the, the concentrations of diverse populations, but uh, the lack of adequate representation in the profession? I'm putting you on the spot here, I know. Oh, no. You know, and I actually feel very strongly about this. Um, to give you an to answer that, when I first moved to Oakland, it was, I won't mention which birthday, but one of a very big birthday for me. Um, I asked all of my friends and family to come together for a fundraising event. And we raised over $3,000 to get Kindles for two different classrooms in Oakland Unified. I bring this up for a reason. I ran that fundraiser for my birthday because I had visited that elementary school my mom, if you watch the video, she's been an educator for 30 years and 
retired from the career as a principal. So when I went to that school and saw the lack of resources these young black and brown children had, and when I say lack of resources, I mean, they didn't even have books. They had Chromebooks that were being circulated from classroom to classroom, only enough for one classroom at a time. And I have to tell you, I was disgusted by this. I was disturbed by this. So circling back to your question, a lot of it is starting with education and the lack of resources that our people have in different communities. You know, and so when we talk about, I do a lot of conversations with University of Cal Berkeley, Mills College, and I get this quite often where they ask me, what do you think would help in stopping this prison pipeline? Well, you know, let's start at kindergarten, first grade, second grade, and help provide resources to educate our children because they're, it's, it's disproportionate to their white yeah. counterparts. No, I think that's right. I, I think it's the inadequate resources much, much earlier in the educational lifespan than people thought, uh, combined with the fact that a lot of uh, people of color uh, it's, aren't made aware of the fact that the law is even an option for them. Uh, and then uh, being able to prepare themselves properly to enter. And then once they enter, being able to successfully uh, matriculate and, and be successful. Um, we are almost at the end of the time for our podcast. Uh, I wanted to take just a couple of minutes and, and ask you uh, to give any parting words of advice, not just for younger lawyers, uh, <laughs> but for anybody who happens to be listening. Uh, not, not just about their own specific uh, particular careers, uh, but, but also just about where we are uh, as a country when it comes to the rule of law, when it comes to an appreciation for what it is that lawyers do. Uh, you, you, you graduated from uh, the Mecca, uh, <laughs> Howard University, uh, which has such a long and strong and proud history of uh, producing lawyers who are contributing to the wellness of the legal ecosystem, uh, for lack of a better term. So you obviously, uh, as we see, are contributing to that legacy. Uh, what would you say people should really be thinking about and focusing on uh, as we think about and talk about the rule of law in this country, and what it looks like, what it should feel like, and how it should contribute to the betterment of society? You know, it's... I know the things that I should say, but I would start with making sure that individually you're staying healthy and well, because one of the things I've seen in my career are black and brown attorneys who are fighting vigorously to impact and change the world for the better and forget to fight equally as hard for their own health and mental health particularly. And that has been something, especially in 2020 and 2021, that I've been actively communicating to people that have asked that question to me is that, yes, you wanna fight the good fight. There are so many ways in which you can impact this world with a law degree, particularly as a person of color, but always keeping in mind to keep yourself healthy, to consider, you know, consider your wellness, consider therapy, making sure that you're staying mentally prepared for the fight and the challenges up ahead in this community. Uh, legal and otherwise. Well said, April. Uh, April Smith, thank you for joining us. Uh, it's been a privilege and a pleasure. And uh, we just appreciate you so much. Thank you for everything that you're doing. Uh, and thanks for spending some time with us today. 
Thank you for having me. This was great.